But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be declared, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Thank you, Brian. Good morning, church. It's good to see everyone this morning on this uh, very uh, busy day in our culture and in our community. Um, I I figured I would start this morning by uh, sharing with you some images and uh, a little short clip with a song that uh, will forever be associated for many of us with either our childhoods or our college years, right? And, uh, and you'll see probably this evening some people coming by trick-or-treating who have borrowed from this, right? You remember this, guys? Yeah? Flower power, the, the age of Aquarius. Remember that? Now, by the way, as we laugh at them, those who were, you know, smart enough to keep those vans, they're now auctioning off for around $35,000. So... Why my parents didn't keep theirs, I don't know. They traded it in for a beetle instead. So anyway, or how about this, right? Just this age of Aquarius where it's going to be filled with love and hope and uh, the whole tie-dye and the psychedelic colors. And you're going to have some of these, you know, uh, as hippies, you know, this evening as they come by and all that good stuff. Um, in fact, I'm going to do you a favor this morning. I'm going to plant in the deepest recesses of your brains, a little song that is going to keep you up all night long. Yeah. You are not gonna be able to get away from it, guys. I'm telling you right now, it is now embedded in your head and you won't be able to do it. And and by the way, I just want you to know that seven-year-old Jerry rocked the big tie for a church outfit. I had it going on. You may not, I bring this to you because you may not know this, but according to modern astrology, the age of Aquarius actually kicked off December 2020 or March 1, depending upon which, you know, astrological source you go to. I have a feeling that the hippies never ever imagined that a pandemic would be what initiated their age of Aquarius and love and honor and everything else. Uh, They they probably could never have imagined that. So 
Uh, you know, we, we can laugh about that, and some of you are having uh, visceral reactions because you dress like the group up on the stage, and uh, we can kind of poke fun at the psychedelic nature of the age a little bit. But, you know, we really should not laugh at what uh, an impact the beliefs of that era in our culture have had in our society. Uh, in 2006, Leonard Steinhorn wrote a book entitled The Greater Generation in Defense of the Baby Boom Legacy, right? And a lot of you are boomers here, right? And, and of course, that's become a little catchphrase. And, and everybody, if you want to say it now, it's the time to say it. Okay, boomer, go ahead, say it. Okay, Boomer, right, that's right, okay, Boomer. But he wrote a book entitled, In Defense of the Greater Generation, the Baby Boom Generation, which is a play off the greatest generation, which we could refer to as the World War II generation. And in it, he argues that the ideas that were formed and forged by the Boomers in the 1960s have actually ushered in a better society, a more inclusive society, and all of its beneficial manifestations, and he gives plenty of them, and of course he's not a Christian, and so the things that he calls beneficial manifestations in some cases are beneficial. So when we think of the ending of Jim Crow laws and racial justice and, and reconciliation in our country, but then there's a ton of things that are not beneficial from the paradigm of scriptures and a Christian worldview. This is actually what he writes, and I want you to notice carefully what he says. We may look back on the counterculture as a quaint relic of the 60s, but the values that animated it, and notice this list, express yourself, experiment with the new, find your own God, don't take anything for granted, appreciate nonconformity, feel comfortable in your skin. How about this last one? Do your own what thing? <clears throat> Do your own thing. These things have permeated American institutions, families, and lives. He's exactly right. And this is why, for many of us, we, we have issues in our society today. But here's the thing. The boomers got it wrong. The hippies got it wrong, I should say. They embraced unbiblical ideas. A false New Age religion is going on here, and um, it's contradicted by the Scriptures. And certainly, um, they were not standing at the dawn of a new age, the age of Aquarius. But here's the interesting thing about Acts chapter 2. Here's why I brought all that up, this whole idea that us were raised with. We are at the dawn of a new age and how exciting and wonderful and great it's going to be. Love and peace and rock and roll, whatever, you know. All of that that we dreamt of was just bunkus, okay? It was wrong. It's untrue. But the early disciples in Acts chapter 2, they actually were standing at the dawn of a new age. And that's what you see here in, in these passages and in these verses that we're looking at this morning. Let's just dive right in. Let's start with the prophesied spirit, the prophesied spirit. Now, to, to, to remind you of where we are in Acts chapter 2, last week, we looked at the first 13 verses. They're gathered together. The Jews are gathered together for Pentecost. Um, again, Pentecost means 50, right? So 50 days after the Feast of the first fruits, 
they would have this second major feast, which was the Feast of the Harvest, 50 days. Jews from all around the known world would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate and to participate in this festival. Now, to go back, and just to remind you, uh, the 50 days before was Resurrection Sunday. You'd have Passover, and then on the Sunday after Passover, the Feast of the First Fruits, right, where they were celebrating. And here you have Jesus being raised from the dead on the Feast of the First Fruits. Why? Because he is the first fruit of all of our resurrections. The Old Testament feasts point us to Christ, and he fulfills them. And you go forward 50 more days, you come to Pentecost. Now remember, during that 50-day period, for 40 of those days, Jesus was interacting with the, the apostles and the disciples. He was eating with them. They were touching them. He was teaching them intensively, coming and going and interacting with them. Then as we saw in Acts 1, he ascends. The ascension takes place, but before he ascends, he tells them to go back to Jerusalem and to wait and pray for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And they do this for 10 days. Luke tells us that they go to the temple every day and they worship and they celebrate God together at the temple. For 10 days, they're doing this. They're going into the upper room. They're praying. They're, they elect another apostle. All of this is taking place. Finally, day 50 after Jesus' resurrection, you come to Pentecost, and here they're gathered together. I, I personally believe that it was at the temple. There's, there's, there's some haziness what it means, the, the room where they're gathered. Is it a side room of the temple? Was it the upper room? I believe it was at the temple. And the reason why is because when the pouring outpouring of the Spirit occurs, there is this massive reaction from the people in the city. And pretty soon you have thousands of people gathered around these 120 disciples. I think this is happening at the temple where they were going and they were worshiping together and praying together. And as they begin to, uh, to, to speak in tongues in the languages and the dialects of the many different nation groups that are there, they're speaking in tongues, they're glorifying, magnifying God, and the people are gathered together around them. They're drawn in curiosity going on. They can hear the wind-like sound, and they see these little dancing tongues of fire over the heads of the, the disciples. They're hearing in their own languages these people from Galilee, many of them, magnifying God. And they ask the question, what does this mean? What does this mean? And so to answer that question, Peter stands up, and he begins to preach, answering their sermon, and he begins I think would maybe one of the, the best introductions to a sermon, much better than, you know, flower power, by, by the way, just for what it's worth. And he, and he makes this really an opening statement that's, that's shocking. In verse 14, Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. Remember, some of them were scoffing and saying, ah, they're drunk. And, and maybe they didn't understand the languages that they were speaking in, and so to them it just sounded like they were babbling, like a drunken person might babble to themselves or you know, ecstatically scream out. But to others, they could understand. And so Peter steps up and he says, no, th this, th these folks are not drunk. And then he proceeds to, to announce to them that what they are seeing and witnessing and experiencing is what we would call the dawning of a new age. It was an age prophesied in the Old Testament. 
an age that we would not think of. And, 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 and Peter uses a term, okay? And, and when I read this, when you hear the term, right, I, I want you to capture for me the first words or maybe even try to draw a mental picture in your head. When you hear the phrase, the label for this new age that we are in, I want you to capture the first picture or words that come into your head. Here's what he says, okay? He says, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. You ready? Here you go. Here's the dawning of the new age. Here's, the, here's where we are. And in the last days, right? Here you go. Last days. That phrase, when you hear that phrase, last days, what comes to your mind, right? What picture do you have? For some of you, the picture is like Halloween Horror Nights, right? And I asked my small group uh, this question, and, and immediately it became clear that some of my small group needs therapy, right? <laughs> it was blood, war, Devastation, disease, plagues, revelation type stuff, right? I mean, let's face it, for, for most of us in here, if you've been raised a Christian for any length of time, when you hear the phrase last days, that's kind of where we go, right? We're trying to go to, all right, that's that's something in the future that's going to happen, and we've studied it, and it's talked about in the book of Revelation, and there's all kinds of books that have been released, most of which aren't accurate at all for the scriptures, but still, they've become popular. They've been, had movies made about them. The last days is this thing that's maybe going to happen very soon in the future, and dude, it's bad, right? It's, this is the four horsemen of the apocalypse here. You know, this is the pale rider, and we're not talking Clint Eastwood in the movie, all right? This is the bad stuff, okay? That's what we think of with the last days. But here's what Peter says. Peter says, we have been living in the last days since Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out on God's people. Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to kick off this new age it starts with Pentecost, and this new age is known as the last days. Now, to be fair, is there a dreadful, somber aspect to the last days? Of course, yes. And in fact, Peter refers to it in verse 19. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness. And the moon, for the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day of the Lord. Uh, yes, there are somber, serious aspects to the day of the Lord. And, and, and those events that are associated with the day of the Lord that we often think of in, the, in, the, in the, the, you know, blood up to the horse's bridles and all the imagery of the book of Revelation, much of this is captured in this idea of the day of the Lord. So, so certainly there is this with the last days. It never, it, I always kind of, you know, am amused when I read the book of Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians, where the, where the Thessalonian Christians were concerned and afraid that they had missed the second coming of Christ. That he had returned, the day of the Lord had occurred, and, and they missed it. It happened and they, they, they didn't see it. 
Church, there's gonna be no mistaking the second coming of Jesus Christ. You don't have to wonder whether or not it has occurred. You do not have to worry that you've missed it. You will not be able to miss the day of the Lord, the second coming of Christ. Now, now to be fair, there are those within Christianity and good people, brothers even that I respect and, and, and have studied under and listened to and read their books, who believe that all of these things, that, that, that this prophecy, for example, this Old Testament prophecy from Joel that, that Peter reads, that it's already, been a, it's already been fulfilled. It was fulfilled at the resurrection, at the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ when the, when the, the sun was darkened and the temple veil was, was torn and that there was an earthquake and all that. I, I don't agree with that understanding of this prophecy that Peter reads. These Old Testament prophecies that have this reference to the day of the Lord with these kinds of signs and, and wonders going on. And one of the reasons why I don't believe it's something that's already been fulfilled is what Jesus himself says. In Matthew chapter 24, as Jesus is asked, how do we know that the end of the age is coming? And he gives all of these verses describing things that will happen during the age, much of which has been happening throughout the last 2,000 years. But then he says this. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Does that sound familiar? It's exactly what Peter just read. Same idea, right? Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. This is exactly what, what Jesus says here is exactly in line with what the Old Testament prophets would say. It's what Peter is referring to. It's what Paul will point to in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 when he points to the day of the Lord and how the Lord will return on the clouds. It, it syncs and harmonizes with what the angels said to the apostles at the ascension when they're standing there looking up when is coming back. And the angels turn to them and come to them and say, why are you looking up in the sky? This same Lord Jesus who ascended into the heavens on the clouds will one day come again in like manner. This hasn't been fulfilled in 70 AD by what some Christians will try to say. No, this is still to come. And this does describe something that happens at the end of this age, of the last days in which we live in. But the good news is what we see in verse 21, where we see that God has made a way to escape that day. And we understand that there is a long period of time between the dawning of this new age known as the last days at Pentecost and the end of the last days at the day of the Lord when these types of causes Signs and wonders occur to accompany the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the good news is that between now and then, Peter says, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls the name of the Lord shall be saved. During this time between what the apostles experienced at Pentecost and the very end of this age, we have this great hope that any one of us 
who has the desire, whether you're male, female, Jew, Gentile, white, black, brown, regardless of your ethnicity, regardless of your sex, regardless of your economic status, anyone who desires to have their sins forgiven can turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and call upon him and you will be saved. I mean, let's remember what happens from this point on in the chapter. You know, I I felt kind of guilty in this sermon, right? Originally, the reading was all the way like to the end of the chapter, but I mean, this is one of the, I think, one of the most pivotal, important chapters in the entire New Testament. And there was no way I could just do it all in one sermon. And, and I've kind of preached from these, the rest of these verses in recent weeks and months, and I didn't want to repeat and all that. But just to remind you, from this point on, Peter turns to the crowd and said, hey, guys, you, you have done something so criminal that it, it just boggles the imagination. God sent the Messiah to us He attested to his validity with signs and wonders and miracles. He proved that he was sent by God, that he was the Messiah. And what did you do? You crucified him. And you killed him. And even though this was the predetermined plan of God, that God would take on flesh and die for our sins, You are responsible for your actions. You decided and you wanted to kill him. And this, his blood is on you. And this Jesus is the Messiah and it's been proven to us because as the Old Testament prophesied through David, he would not leave his son to rot in the grave, but instead would raise him from the dead And David was not talking about himself. David, as prophet David, was looking through time and seeing what God would do for his seed, Jesus. And this is what happened. He raised him from the dead, and we are all witnesses to it. We saw this. We touched him. We ate with him. We interacted with him. And we saw him ascend. And now he's sitting on the right hand of the throne of God, fulfilling the promises of the Psalms where he rules and reigns as our messianic king until one day everything will be wrapped up and put under his feet. This is what you've done. And this is what this is all about. What does this mean, they ask. And Peter gives them this beautiful answer. And in turn, their hearts are stricken. When they consider what they have done and how they have sinned against Christ and rejected him, many of them are convicted and they cry out, no longer, what does this mean? They now ask, what must we do about this? And Peter in Acts 2.38 says, Repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you too will be given the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this promise, it is for anyone who is here. Peter says, All of you Jews from around the world, this promise is for you, but it's also for the Gentiles, and it's also for our children. And so here in this passage where Yeah, Peter does remind us that at the end of this age, there is going to be 
a somber, dreadful time where Jesus returns and he judges the living and the dead according to whether or not they bow to him as Lord and Savior, he also reminds us that now is the time of salvation. That anyone here this morning or who hears my voice who is convicted of their own need for the forgiveness of their sins, who has been worshiping themselves, following after their own way, that today is the day where you can repent, where you can no longer serve self and give allegiance to your false way of life and instead transfer your allegiance and embrace Him as your Lord and Savior. This is available to any who want it this morning. Do you want it? Who has your allegiance? Who has your allegiance? Does Jesus have your allegiance? Listen, some of you have been in church all of your life. Don't glibly, quickly answer that question. Think about it. Look at your heart. Does Jesus have your allegiance? If he does, he's your savior. If he doesn't, You've just been participating in religion, and religion will send you to hell. It'll send you to hell. So let's turn from the prophesied spirit. Let's close out this morning with the prophesying spirit-filled believers. Verse 16, Peter says, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel, and in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Here it is, right? Here we are. It's a trans, I'm talking about transitions, guys. I mean, this is a, I mean, the transition of the ascension. Now you have yet another transition. This series that we're in all ministry here, now's the transition of a new age known as the last days. And we all know how transitions can cause us to respond with fear and trepidation. Do you see fear and trepidation in the lives of these disciples with this transition? Do you see them paralyzed with fear or are they energized with power? Are they quaking in terror? Are they filled with dread or are they responding with zeal and excitement? Which one? Transitions don't need to scare us. There are opportunities to claim. The idea of living in the last days didn't fill them with fear, didn't fill them with trepidation, didn't cause them to go become a prepper and keep you know, 150 pounds of rice and meals for two years. No, they didn't do all that, right? They weren't filled with that kind of response. They were filled with the Spirit, a totally different one. Why, Why did they respond? understood what the last days meant for them. For us, it's something that I want us to make sure that we get this morning, that a defining characteristic of the last days is the work of the Holy Spirit within God's people so they can glorify Jesus before unbelievers. The last days are not something to be afraid of. The last days are an opportunity for us to be used by God in a mighty, mighty way. And the, the disciples, these early disciples, they were living this out. 
I mean, with his first, ad, with his first advent, Jesus, right? He, he comes and he inaugurates this dawning of the new age. He ratifies it by sending the Holy Spirit to them. And the Holy Spirit descends, but the Holy Spirit and his ministry in the New Testament saints is different than what it was in the Old Testament saints. He doesn't come and go, as we pointed out last week. Instead, his powerful presence in us and throughout this age, it is, it is there all of the time. From the first day of Pentecost until the last day of Pentecost, this age has the fingerprints of the Holy Spirit stamped all over it. Remember when we were talking about the, in the first message, the, the title of this Acts. Acts of what? And traditionally, it's Acts of the Apostles. That, that title has been filled in. But if you look at the book of Acts, the central character in the book of Acts is not the apostles, it's the Holy Spirit. Maybe a, a compromise might be the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the apostles. Okay, maybe we can go that way, all right? And we can have our cake and eat it too and blend the two. But it's clearly the Holy Spirit. And this ministry is different. He's with us. This is what Jesus promised in John 14. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Church, we don't live in the age of Aquarius, just in case you were wondering. It's not this morning. We don't live in the age of Aquarius. That's false religion. But we do live in the age of the Holy Spirit. We do live in the last days. And Peter's sermon and his actions and the disciples' actions on the day of Pentecost, they give us a very vivid picture of what it looks like for us to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to be used by the Holy Spirit. Through Spirit-filled prophesying, these believers are magnifying Jesus, they're glorifying God before a massive crowd of unbelievers, the very people who crucified Jesus, and they're doing it boldly and effectively power. Men and women, old and younger people alike, some of them were educated, some of them were not, they're all prophesying, being used by God for the glory of Jesus Christ. That, that word prophesying, right? It's a broad word in Scripture, has a lot of meanings. Clearly here in Acts chapter 2, it's kind of an umbrella word. As, as Peter uh, quotes from the book of Joel, it, it includes having dreams and visions. And you're going to see some of this later in the book of Acts. It obviously includes speaking in tongues. And here in Acts chapter 2, those tongues were the languages and the dialects of human nation groups, right? And, and they're using those gifts, that prophesying is manifesting itself and speaking out loud the glory, the greatness, the knowledge of God in Jesus Christ to people who needed to hear it. And, and it was used by God to do His work in their life. You know, th this is exactly kind of how Paul describes prophesying in 1 Corinthians 14. Remember, the Corinthians were fascinated with the gift of tongues. Their version of the gift of tongues was clearly not like the version of the gift of tongues in Acts chapter 2. There's debate whether or not Paul 
agreed with their understanding of tongues or not. We won't go down that road right now, but what is very clear is what he says to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 is that the gift that all of us should seek to manifest as evidence of the filling of the Holy Spirit is prophesying, proclaiming the truth of God in such a way that it helps draw the unbeliever to Jesus Christ or it helps build up and encourage and strengthen our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Essentially, when you are filled with the Holy Spirit, do not be surprised if it doesn't manifest itself in some way where the Holy Spirit uses you to glorify God in Jesus Christ for the benefit of other people, believers or unbelievers. And it can take many different forms. It can be singing, it can be speaking, it can be teaching. It can be a testimony. It can be counsel, right? It can be any number of things. And then and there's fluidity here in the New Testament, but that common idea is that it centers around Jesus. And, and this makes sense. This is an infinitely practical, sensible, a needed manifestation of the Holy Spirit in, in our lives and in our church. Let's remember, what is our mission? According to Acts chapter one, we are to be the witnesses of our Lord Jesus Christ in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth. In Acts chapter one, verse eight, the two go together. You will be filled with the Holy Spirit and you will be my witnesses. These two things are linked together. And so it's infinitely sensible now, one of the primary ways we will know that we're being filled and used by the Holy Spirit is that in some way or another, we are glorifying God and the greatness of our Lord Jesus Christ in whatever setting we find ourselves in. It's an incredibly practical gift. And it's certainly evidence of the Holy Spirit's presence because the Holy Spirit's ministry is all about glorifying and exalting Jesus before an unbelieving world. That's his role, to make much of Jesus. And as followers of Jesus, what's our role? To make much of Jesus to the world in which we live. So the Holy Spirit fills us and he works through us to draw the lost to Jesus, to encourage one another to be stronger in the gospel, to build one another up and become more like him. And so Paul says to the Corinthians, pursue love, <coughs> excuse me, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in, tongue, in a tongue, and remember the, the Corinthian tongue here was kind of a ecstatic speech. It was not a human language or dialect like Acts 2. He says, for the one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God, for no one understands him. But he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. And Paul will go on to say, I'd rather you say five, five words of clear prophecy that builds up others and edifies them than 5,000 words in a tongue that nobody understands but you, possibly. So prophesying is a consistent 
manifestation of being filled with the Spirit that benefits other people because the Holy Spirit is working through us to draw them to Jesus or to point them to the cross and to the power of the gospel. And it's something that all of us in one way or another can, I think, participate in as we are filled with the Holy Spirit. So let's close with the the big question, right? How does this happen in my life? What does this mean? What do I do? What do we do? What? So what? How, how do we experience this kind of filling and ministry of the Holy Spirit in a consistent basis? Um, I would suggest to you, and, and by the way, this could be a, a sermon series in and of itself. So I'm going to give you like the, the two-minute version of it to which you say amen. Right, right, there you go. Okay. Um, let me start by just saying this. I can't emphasize enough the interdependence that is there between the Word of God and being saturated with the Word of God and being filled with the Holy Spirit. Being consumed with the Word of God and saturated with the Word of God in our hearts and our minds and being filled with the Holy Spirit, these two things are inextricably linked together. You, you actually see this with Peter in this message. I mean, let's think about it. Peter did not attend the school of the prophets. He was not trained to be a rabbi. And yet he stands up and in this sermon, in several locations, he quotes perfectly Old Testament scripture. He is saturated. He's a fisherman who has been saturated with the scriptures and the word of God. And at the appointed time, That saturation with the Word of God combined with the filling and the presence of the Holy Spirit brings forth a powerful result in the lives of people. Being a Spirit-filled Christian who is used by the Holy Spirit to draw men to Christ happens not because we have filled our heads with Dr. Phil or some other means of worldly wisdom, even the worldly wisdom that is true, that is not what has power. It is the Word of God in us that we now own. It's a part of who we are that the Holy Spirit uses in some way because the power is in the Word of God and powered by the Holy Spirit, not in our human wisdom. So Spirit-filled parents When their children misbehave and do wrong, they bring to them the truth of the gospel. And hopefully with the power of the Holy Spirit associated with it, so that change happens in the lives of their children. And Spirit-filled employees respond to their coworkers with the Word of God in different ways. It can be a summary. It can be a quotation. It can be the the truth encapsulated in a winsome way. But it's the truth of God's Word with the power of the Holy Spirit behind it. Listen, these two points, they go together. We we should not disregard that to be Spirit-filled Christians means we are also filled with the Word of God. And we know it. We're saturated with it. Look at, look at this in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. You're to be filled with the Holy Spirit, Paul says, and when you are filled with the Holy Spirit, it's going to come out of your mouth. 
This is prophesy. This is a form of prophesying. In this case, he highlights singing, building one another up as we sing and worship together. But, but notice what he says to the Colossians. Almost identical wording, except here he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Do you see the correlation between the two? These things are linked together. It starts right there with us becoming saturated with the Word of Christ and then surrendering ourselves to the Holy Spirit in prayer, asking for Him to use us, to fill us, you know, just as an example, you, you may be facing a situation, and I, I, I can I tell you this, this is how it works itself out in my life, the times that, you know, I'm dealing with something or someone, and they're asking, and I don't know, I don't know what to say. And it's easy to lean into your own knowledge, your own training in those moments, and that's a mistake. Before we ever lean into our own training or knowledge or what we've been taught we should first lean into the Holy Spirit through prayer. And for me, it, it works out something like this. It's a simple, quiet prayer in my mind. Holy Spirit, give me the words that glorify Jesus and help John understand his need for salvation. Holy Spirit, give me the words that bring the gospel to life so that my son can become a man of God. Holy Spirit, Give me the words to glorify Jesus so that I can speak comfort to this wife who's struggling in her marriage. It all starts first knowing the Word of God, seeking into it, learning it, memorizing it, reading it consistently, faithfully, and then surrendering ourselves regularly in prayer, leaning into the Holy Spirit, knowing that he is in us and he's never going to leave us and forsake us. And in the moment of our need, the promise is, I will give you the words to say. So pray, lean into the Holy Spirit, and then walk by faith and believe. And open your mouth and say what comes into your heart and mind and trust that he's the one who is guiding you. Heavenly Father, make us a church that is known for the power of your Spirit. That the words that come from this stage are your words that come with power. And that we as a church are a people who lean into this opportunity that you give us to be ministers, channels of the Holy Spirit who will speak through us for the benefit and the blessing of others. Heavenly Father, we stand in awe this morning knowing that even as you predestined that Jesus would die on the cross for our sins, you have ordained the ends of every person that we will ever interact with. But in the same way, you have predestined and ordained the means to those ends. Your children, us in this room, being filled with the Spirit, allowing him to speak through us so that the words of life could be heard by those whom we love and interact with. For faith cometh by hearing, hearing from the word of the Lord. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.